0: We have a number of readings today from Genesis, Colossians, Romans, Matthew, and Acts. So beginning with Genesis chapter 2 verses 21 to 24, these are God's words. And Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof, and the rib which Yahweh God had taken from the man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man cleave, uh, leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife. And they shall be one flesh. Colossians three eighteen to chapter four, verse one. Wives be in subjection to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. "'Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. "'Fathers, provoke not your children, that they not be discouraged. "'Parents, servants, obey in all things them that are your masters according to the flesh, "'not with eye service as men pleases, but in singleness of heart, fearing the Lord. "'Whatsoever ye do, work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, "'knowing that from the Lord ye shall receive the recompense of the inheritance. "'Ye serve the Lord Christ.'" For he that doeth wrong shall receive again for the wrong that he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Masters, render unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Genesis 9, verses 5 to 6. Surely your blood, the blood of your lives, will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man, even at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Romans 13, 7 Let every soul be subject to the higher authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities existing are appointed by God, so that he who is setting himself against the authority has resisted against God's ordinance, and those resisting will receive judgment to themselves. For those ruling are not a terror to the good works, but to the evil. And do you wish to not be afraid of the authority? Be doing that which is good, and you will have praise from it, for it is a servant of God to you for good. And if you may do that which is evil, be fearing, for it does not bear the sword in vain, for it is a servant of God, an avenger for wrath to him who is doing that which is evil. For this reason, it is necessary to be subject not only because of the wrath, but also because of the conscience. For because of this you also pay tribute, for they are servants of God, on this very thing attending continually. Render therefore to all their dues, to whom tribute the tribute, to whom custom the custom, to whom fear the fear, to whom honor the honor. Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20. All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, immersing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And finally, Acts chapter 4, verses 13 to 21 and 5, 26 to 29. Now, when they beheld the boldness of Peter and John and had perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man that was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it, but when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, "What shall we do to these men? For that indeed, a notable miracle hath been worked through them is manifest to all that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it, but that it spread no further among the people. Let us threaten them, that they speak henceforth no man in this name, to no man in this name." And they called them and charged them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to hearken unto you rather than unto God, judge ye, for we cannot but speak the things which we saw and heard. And they, when they had further threatened them, let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done." Peter and John then continued to minister to the people in the name of Jesus, preaching the gospel and healing the sick until we come to verse 26. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them, but without violence, for they fear the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than man. These are God's words. Please be seated. You might wonder what all of these passages, which I admit did seem a little less long when I had them written down and not, not quite as less long when I read them. You might be wondering what they all have to do with each other. So, I will tell you in advance that the common theme, the connection that links them all, is that they all either show something about one of the three institutions, one of the, well, they all do show something about one of the three institutions, one of the three spheres of authority, as they're classically called, that God has established. They either show the institution of one of those spheres, or they speak to the proper ordering of one of those spheres. Or they show the limits of the authority that one sphere has against another. And the importance of this will become obvious as we go through this material. But first, let me recap where we are at. Last week, we started to look at what makes a church a church. We have been talking about the possibility of covenanting together. And so we wanted to make sure we did not do that without clear instruction and without knowing what we were doing. We very quickly saw that to answer the question, what makes a church a church, we actually need to know what makes the church the church, because the smaller bodies, the local churches, are just reflections of the larger body, the universal church. The church is a body with a head, Christ, and this structure, this pattern, is fractal. It repeats all the way down. So asking what makes a church a church is really the same question as to ask what makes the church the church. Whatever it is that makes the church the church, at a universal level, that same pattern must repeat at the local level, local churches being smaller bodies participating in the larger body. What we saw last week is that the church is defined first and foremost, not only, but first and foremost, by having Christ as its head. Whatever else the church is, it is only the church when Christ is its head. So if a congregation does not have Christ as its head, if it is not governed by Christ, then it is not a church. And if a congregation does have Christ as its head, if it is governed by Christ, then it certainly has what it needs to be a church. Because the church is uniquely Christ's body, we have to conclude that it is also the instrument by which he advances his rule. And this got us into some somewhat gnarly territory last time. I talked about how he uses the church, his body, to increase the recognition and the establishment and the promotion of his reign, his rulership in the world. And this is the very reason that he commands us, as our great commission, to make the nations into disciples, instructing them in his law and training them. In his righteousness, as we just read in Matthew 28, because he has been given all authority on earth, we must go and make disciples of the nations of earth, teaching them whatsoever he has commanded us. This is literally our mission as a church. It is the foundation of gospel ministry. The term make disciples is two words in English, but in Greek, it is just one. It is a single word. If we try to translate it into a word that doesn't really exist in English, but still kind of makes sense because English is awesome that way, we might say that our mission is to disciplinate the nations or to discipleize the nations, meaning to train them or to instruct them in order to develop in them mature knowledge and behavior shaped by Christ's word. In Matthew 13:52, Jesus uses the same word in Greek when he says, Every scribe who hath been trained or disciplinated or discipleized to the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder who bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. So the Great Commission, our Great Commission, is a directive to train the nations in the word of God. This is why Paul, as he summarizes the gospel, both in the opening and the closing of Romans, describes that gospel as being unto obedience of faith among all the nations. It's Romans one five and 16.26. So we covered all that, but I believe that I failed you last week because I told you this much, but... I told you, in essence, that the church is authorized and empowered by Christ to judge and instruct on any issue of good and evil, and I told you that the the church does not answer to the state, and that, indeed, it is to instruct the state. But I did not answer a very reasonable question that you might well have, and without answering that question, I'm afraid that you might have all kinds of concerns and confusion about what exactly I am saying, so... Today, I want to try to fill in some gaps, and I want to try to clarify some things. For instance, am I saying that the church should rule over all of society? Should the church be in charge of everything? Because Christ's in charge of everything. Does the Bible really teach something like the Christian version of the Taliban? Is civil government under the church? Or must families, for instance, do whatever their pastors tell them to? I want to answer this question today and I'm going to give you the very straightforward answer first uh, and then I will explain that answer so that you understand more fully why it is so and why it matters that it is so. So the straightforward answer is no. The church is not to rule over all society. It is not to exercise power over the state or the family. That would actually be a terrible and unholy and wicked corruption of what God has said, it would be a very bad thing and it would be basically a super cult. It would be to take us back to the Middle Ages where the Pope thought that he ruled over everything and everyone and there were wars between popes and emperors. Scripture absolutely forbids this. Now let me help you to understand why this is and how The church is to relate to other spheres of authority. Right now, many of us, I think, are worried about totalitarianism, or at least talking about totalitarianism. I don't know if you've thought about the word totalitarianism, but if you have, you will have noticed that it begins with the word total. Totalitarianism. Eterianism. Totalitarianism is what happens when the state starts to seek total control. Total authority, total power over every sphere of life. When the scope of the state's jurisdiction becomes totalizing, then you have a totalitarian state. In other words, when the state starts to take authority, which God has not granted to it, it starts to become totalitarian. Now, there are actually three spheres of authority which are recognized in classic Reformed theology as being foundational to society, and instituted directly by God. You guys have gone over some of this to some extent, but I will refresh your memory. First is the state, which is represented by magistrates. I'm not putting this in any any particular order, by the way. You could certainly put the family first in many respects. But the first I have listed here is the state represented by magistrates, rulers and officials and judges and policemen and that kind of thing. And God has appointed to the state the ministry of the sword, And the duty of this ministry is to act as Christ's servant, as we read in Romans 13, to administer his justice by upholding good and punishing evil. Because God has appointed the state to this duty, the church must recognize the state's authority as his servant in this jurisdiction. The second sphere is the church, which is represented by the shepherds or pastors or elders of the congregations. God has appointed to the church the ministry of the keys of the kingdom. The duty of this ministry is to act as Christ's servant, again, to administer his righteousness by instructing all men in the knowledge of good and evil and declaring Christ's favor or disfavor. And again, because God has appointed the church to this ministry, the state must recognize the church's authority as his servant in this domain. And the household is the third of the spheres. This is represented by fathers and mothers, and God has appointed to the household the ministry of the rod. The duty of the household is to act as Christ's servant to administer his fatherly care over creation by raising up children, instructing them in God's ways, and acting as good stewards of the property that he bestows upon them. And once again, both church and state must recognize the authority of the household or the family as God's servant over the domain that he has given to them. I'm not going to tell you in detail, I don't want to get too sidetracked, what the duties are that fall to the church and the state and the household. I'm not going to try to enumerate them in detail for you uh, because you guys are covering this in the Reform Basics course during the week. But we can see at a glance, for instance that the state is given a very specific ministry. This does not include duties like health care or education. Those naturally fall to the household. It is the duty of the household heads to make sure that their children are educated. For instance, in Deuteronomy 6 and verses 6 to 7, we read, These words which I command thee this day shall be upon thy heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them, when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. What it is mandating here is essentially a culture of instruction in God's word. In the same way, Ephesians 6, four tells us, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but nurture them in the chastening and admonition of the Lord. It is also easy to see, when you think about this, that When the state takes a duty like this, a duty like education, away from the household, it is actually robbing the household. Imagine, for instance, if a state-educated teacher came into my house or Jared's house at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning and said to our children, Right kids, sit down at the dining room table. From now on, your parents may not teach you, you have to listen to me. And if we tried to stop that teacher, imagine if that teacher then called the police and the police came and took us away in order to punish us for trying to teach our children instead of the state. Well, that is actually what happens in some countries. And even in New Zealand, you have to get permission from the state to teach your own children. New Zealand is far better than most countries on this. Jared is right to say that we still have a very Christian culture and we should be very grateful for the ministry of justice that we do have. And yet even in New Zealand, we have a state that thinks that it is in charge of teaching. And if the parents want to do it, the state will graciously grant them permission. What arrogance to grant parents permission to do the very thing that God has explicitly given them authority and the responsibility to do. It is God who grants that permission, and the state, when it does this, is showing that it thinks it is God. It is totalizing its authority, as totalitarian states always will tend to do. Now, think of it from another perspective. Imagine if instead of the state coming in, to your house, to teach your children. Imagine if the church did this. Imagine if a deacon of the church came in at nine o'clock and said, I'm here to teach your children. No more teaching your children. It's my job. And if you tried to object to this, the church put you under discipline. You would say that church is a cult. It is overstepping its authority. It is acting oppressively. And you would be completely correct. This is why, if you look in our founding document, One of our founding documents, our mission and our vision statement, you'll find a section that is titled, What Our Work Must Look Like, and of the seven principles there, the fourth is limiting our ministry to what God has defined for the church. Limiting our ministry to what God has defined for the church. So this is in one of our founding documents, I quote, We believe in all of Christ for all of life, not all of church, for all of life. We don't create ministries or programs just because there is a need. We instead ask who God has assigned the responsibility for that need. This ensures that we don't assume the duties given to households or states, nor replicate or interfere with their work. We leave room to instruct our members in taking up their own responsibilities of ministering to their families and communities, and we avoid creating obligations or expectations that are onerous or overbearing. So you will never see at Redwood anyone trying to take over the education of your children. You'll never see us either, this is something cults commonly do, trying to take over your property. It's a classic sign of a cult, as I'm sure you're aware from the example of Gloria Vale. I think that's probably something that's high in all of our consciousness in the last couple of years. It is not the church's place, to take charge of the property of its members if you think of the story of Ananias and Sapphira they sell the field and they then pretend to give all of the money to the church and but what does peter say to them he says while it remained did it not remain thine own in other words when you still had it it was yours and after it was sold was it not in thy power in your power so both the land and the money from selling the land remained the property of Ananias and Sapphira until they gifted it to the church. These were free will offerings. Their sin was not in keeping back something for themselves, for they were entitled to everything that they had. It was their property. Their sin was in lying to the Holy Spirit by pretending to give everything, when in fact they were not. The church does not seize the property of its members. Neither does the church make medical decisions for its members. Again, I said that um, healthcare is the, the domain of the family, and so you'll never find us trying to tell you what medicine to use. You'll never find us telling you what precautions to take. Like churches, you know, if, if you think that a mask is a good idea, we'll maybe take you aside and say, Masks probably don't work, but we're not going to use the power of the keys of the kingdom to preach from the pulpit, this is what God says, do not wear a mask. Even on something as serious as the COVID vaccine. We would never use church authority to command you not to take it. We would not put you under discipline for taking the vaccine. You'll never hear us say, thus saith the Lord, do not take the vaccine. Because the Lord has not said that. We would tell you why wisdom says to avoid the vaccine. We would show you the evidence of how deadly it is. And we would um, pray for you that you would not be coerced into taking it if that was what was happening. But we cannot command you on these things. The authority simply is not given to us to command it. You are under your own authority on these things. You are directly under God. And in fact, this is a key point on which we sharply differ with many churches today. Most churches in New Zealand have acted cultishly. Because remember, a church acts cultishly when it oversteps its authority and pretends to speak for God on something that God has not actually given it authority to say. So think about this. How many churches in the past couple of years have said to come to worship, you must wear a mask? Or to be fit for worship, You must take the vaccine. Or even worse, if you don't wear a mask or you don't take the vaccine, then you are not loving your neighbor. You are actually in sin. But has God said these things? No. This is the very definition of cultic. That churches are using the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose what God has never given them, permission to bind and loose. God does not limit worship in this way. God does not define love and thus sin in this way. So these churches are using their authority oppressively, unlawfully, illegitimately, even cultishly. But what about the place of the church next to the state? That's obviously a big question for us. I said last week that the church is its own government. It is not under the government of the state. But what implications are there of that? Does that mean... I've I've denied that the church is over the state, but how? How does that work? Well, these are separate powers. The church is not over the state because it does not have the authority over enforcing justice. They are separate jurisdictions. Separate authorities, separate powers. Both the church and the state, like the household, are instituted directly by God for their distinct purposes. They are individual pillars that hold up society. They are all under Christ, and they all act on behalf of his rule. They are under the same rule, and they minister for the same Lord, but they are not one institution And they do not have the same missions and purposes and duties. So the church does not owe its existence to the state. It does not derive its law from the state. It is not subservient to the state. And it is certainly not part of the state. And yet, none of that means that the church can replace the state. It simply cannot. For the church to try to take on the administration of justice, which is given only to the state would be as much a tyrannical overreach as the state trying to take on the administration of the gospel. Christ has not authorized the church to administer civil affairs. He has authorized the state to do this. If you look again at Romans 13, you'll see immediately that the state, the state is expected. It is presupposed that it will, rep- that it will represent God and his law. Let every soul be subject to the higher authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities existing are appointed by God, so that he who is setting himself against the authority has resisted against God's ordinance, and those resisting will receive judgment to themselves. But it goes on. For those ruling are not a terror to the good works, but to the evil. And do you wish to not be afraid of the authority, be doing that which is good? So in verse 3, Paul is explicit. I'm sorry, I left out the verse numbers. Paul is explicit that rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. And in verses 4 to 5, he makes it even more explicit that they are servants of God to administer his justice. That is, to uphold his law. And Peter says the same thing. In 1 Peter 2.14, he says that governors are sent by God for punishment indeed, of of evildoers, and a praise of those doing good. Now, these passages are not blank checks, quite obviously, not blank checks, for the state to do whatever it wants. Otherwise, it would have said that they were not ministers of God's justice. These are not descriptions of the state being allowed to do whatever it wants, just make up justice. They are descriptions of the purpose of the state, the reason that God has instituted it in the first place, to act on behalf of Christ, his justice. The state is the minister of Christ's justice, not just made-up human justice. The Greek says that it is his deacon for vengeance. The church does not do this. But what the church does do, as Christ's own body on earth, is it represents Christ before the state, so that the state will know what justice looks like. If the state is to represent Christ, it must know his law. That is why Christ commands the church to make disciples of the nations, teaching them everything he has commanded. It is not just the individuals that are the focus of the Great Commission. It is the nations themselves, because the nations are Christ's inheritance. At the risk of hammering this point, it is not just individuals who he tells us to disciples. He commands, he commands his church to instruct the nations in righteousness, he does not authorize them to enforce righteousness. He separates those powers. and This is actually where the modern idea of the separation of powers within a government comes from. The church cannot bear the sword to punish evil, but it does bear the sword of the Spirit, the, sword of God, the word of God, the keys of the kingdom, to declare God's displeasure with evil, to call magistrates to repentance, to warn them of the wrath to come, and to instruct them in a way more perfect. Now, when the church does not do this, when it withdraws from the public square, when, as in the modern day, it primarily treats politics as a sort of secular thing that's not really related to religion, it's not the church's concern to get involved with politics, does the church stop instructing the state when it does this? It does not stop instructing the state because what it does is by its actions— It instructs the state that there is no God above it. So this is a very serious error, and it is really an abdication of the exact duty that Christ gave the church in the first place. It is to abandon the ministry of the gospel to the nations. You can minister to individuals, yet abandon the nations that they live within. You can speak to the members, but disregard the body. Now, this brings us back to the question of jurisdiction again. I've given you many examples of ways that the three institutions, the household, the church, the state, can steal authority from each other. And in terms of the church, we've seen that it's cultic, for instance, to take from the family decisions about healthcare, or to take from the family uh, decisions about education, or to take from Christ himself decisions about who may attend worship or um, by adding to his law, calling things sin that are not sin or not love that are that are love, it is cultic to use the, the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose people's consciences on issues that Christ has not given it authority to bind and loose. And it's even worse for it to bind and loose people's consciences by speaking falsely for Christ. And these are obviously not hypothetical issues. I'm not speaking about these things because I find them theoretically interesting. They are live issues. But... Equally obviously, these cultic actions have not actually been driven by churches. It's not like the churches were going out looking for ways to act cultishly. They weren't thinking, hmm, how can we redefine love to make people get into trouble? Or how can we add to worship? No, these ideas, these policies, these decisions came from the state. And churches just rubber stamped what the state told them to do. In other words, it was the state that stole authority from the household and then from the church, and churches just went along with it. In the past couple of years, New Zealand's government assumed authority for itself over health decisions, taking authority that rightly belongs to the household, and it assumed authority for itself over the ministry of the church, deciding all kinds of things about worship. Now, I don't, Again, I don't want to labor this point, but I do want to clarify what I said last week because it is very important to be careful here. It is very important to understand why such a seemingly political issue that most Christians would say is really a secular concern. This should not be in the pulpit. It's not central to the gospel, certainly. I want you to understand why it really is central to the gospel. By allowing the state to take authority over their ministry, churches have sinned terribly against Christ because their ministry is gospel ministry. The ministry of the word is the ministry of the gospel. The ministry of worship is the ministry of the gospel. This ministry is given directly by Christ and governed directly by Christ. It is Christ who has authority over the church and her ministry. And it is through the church and her ministry that he exercises that authority. And this is why when the magistrates of Jerusalem say, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet ye have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, Peter and the apostles answer and they say, we must obey God rather than men. They don't say, we're sorry. We must obey the state. They say, you guys need to stay in your lane. It is not your job to dictate the church's ministry. You are out of your jurisdiction. Your reach exceeds your grasp. We must obey what God has given to us, not what you want to take for yourselves. Christ speaking in his word is the only government over the ministry of the church. He is the only one who decides things like whether worship is essential and the conditions under which anyone may partake in worship or when and where worship may be conducted or how many people may gather and what they must wear but these unfortunately these are exactly the things that our state has presumed to decide in the past couple of years the state took authority over the ministry of the church and this is the same thing that we saw Happened in Acts, the state tried to take authority over the ministry of the church, and so it is something that the church ought to be prepared for. We have examples of it to prepare us. The church should always be ready to say, we must obey God rather than men. Anytime the state tries to wield the keys of the kingdom instead of the sword, the church should, without hesitation, say, no, those are ours. The distressing thing is that none of New Zealand's churches that I'm aware of, apart from destiny, actually did this. Instead of telling our government, no, we answer to Christ alone, we must obey God rather than men. Instead of preaching to the state its duty before Christ, instead of using this as an opportunity to fulfill the great commission of teaching our nation everything Christ commanded, they obeyed the state. But to obey the state when it takes authority over the church's ministry just is to disobey Christ himself. It is to say by our actions, yes, the state is the Lord of the church. Which is the same as saying, no, Christ is not the Lord of the church. Which is why John Knox famously said, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. And this is why it has been a topic that we've talked about from the pulpit, and it is why we treat it as such a serious thing. The ministry of the gospel does not owe its existence to the state. It does not derive from the state. It's not subservient to the state. So churches that allowed the state to take authority over the ministry of the gospel were, in essence, aiding and abetting rebellion against Christ. And because those churches are bodies, all of their members were participating in this rebellion because that's how a body works. And that is why we felt forced to start Redwood, lest we come under judgment with them. But, and this is very important to hear, we are not saying these churches are not churches at all. How could we dare say Redwood is the only true church? What was it, from us that the word of God came? If we were teaching that, you would all be implicated in a terrible blasphemy against Christ's bride. If we were railing against any church, you would all be implicated in railing against Christ's bride. We dare not do this. But we must walk a very difficult line because we also dare not say nothing. We have to walk this very narrow ledge between dishonoring the bride of Christ by saying something against it and dishonoring Christ himself by not saying anything. If we were to say, you know, these things, shutting down worship and so forth, they're not really a big deal. They aren't really important. They're not a gospel issue. The church has made a bit of a mistake, but it's, it's over now. It's fine. We would be saying that the lordship of Christ is not a big deal and not important and not a gospel issue. We would be found to be blaspheming Christ. And this is why we believe it is necessary to address church and state and governance and rulership and the spheres of authority from the pulpit. This is why we talk about politics when we preach. Politics is the art of government, and this is something that the church is actually required to teach on behalf of Christ, because the government is on his shoulder. So we must speak about these things at the appropriate times. We must instruct our people in why it matters when the state overreaches its authority, and why it matters when churches allow it. We're not saying these things just because we're grumpy or proud or factious or difficult or judgmental. It truly is not because we are like everyone's crazy uncle at every birthday party. It is because we know from Scripture that the very lordship of Christ and the very nature of his church is at stake in these issues. So we're trying to walk that difficult line between honoring other churches as churches, daring not to condemn the the bride of Christ, while also honoring Christ himself as Lord of those churches by recognizing that their actions have overturned and affronted that lordship. But I want to change tacks a little, change tact a little, to talk about application. Because application is for us. It isn't for the other churches. Okay, we know that they did something wrong, but we can't change that. When we talk about the importance of these things, and especially when we have to speak frankly about the failures of other churches, it is easy to fall into temptation. We might begin to think to ourselves, we're better than those churches. We might become proud and arrogant, but we have not been tested as those churches have. We have not been given the opportunity to fail in the same way. Scripture wisely says, let not him that girdeth on his armor boast As himself, uh, boast himself as he that putteth it off. In other words, do your boasting after you've come out of battle, not before. Once you have defied the state's mandates, once you have been fined, once you have been taken to prison, once you have fought the battle in court, then you can say, We would not cave before tyranny as other churches have, but until you have done that, until we have done that, We should simply say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I do not want us to be thought of, and I certainly do not want us to become a haughty church. I don't want to ever give you the impression from the pulpit or in our culture, just the way that we talk, that we are lording ourselves over other churches. It is a very difficult line to walk, being willing to speak to their error, without seeming to exalt ourselves against them. And you should be willing to call me out or call Jared out or call anyone out if you think that we truly are being arrogant or contemptuous. But we all also have the responsibility to receive instruction with charity, not assuming the worst. And this is also a difficult line to walk. You as the congregation and we as your teachers must both be diligent in our duties to the ninth commandment. Listen to what the Westminster Larger Catechism says here. This is one of the most helpful things I've ever read on the ninth commandment. The duties required in the ninth commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. Appearing and standing for the truth and from the heart sincerely, freely clearly and fully speaking the truth and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever, a charitable esteem of our neighbors, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name, sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities, freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of a good report And unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers. And of course, the sins forbidden in the ninth commandment include all prejudicing the truth and the good name of our neighbors. That's uh, questions 144 and 145. We all have these duties, both in giving instruction and in receiving instruction. And we have these duties when speaking of other churches. And when we're speaking of other brothers, both from the pulpit and in general conversation. So, this may come slightly out of left field as an application, but I want to attend to our own works, lest we be found with logs in our eyes. I do not want us to create a culture that flows out of thinking the worst of everyone, a culture that is built at the expense of other churches or other believers. I'm afraid that we have already started to allow ourselves and even sometimes to boast in being negative about other churches in various ways. So let me draw your attention to Paul's instructions to Titus. He tells them he tells him to put the churches in mind. This is Titus 3. To be ready unto every good work, to speak evil of no man, not to be contentious, to be gentle, showing all meekness toward all men. For we also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love toward man appeared, not by works done by us in righteousness, which we did ourselves, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. You notice that Paul is speaking of unbelievers here. Speak no evil of them, he says, for we were once like them. And but for the grace of God, we still would be. And if not unbelievers, how much more should we speak no evil of believers, of our own brothers? I think we must examine ourselves here. I think we have allowed ourselves to drift into jesting at the expense of other churches and of other brothers and we have allowed ourselves to start tolerating a culture that is not if not necessarily characterized by scoffing, but certainly accommodates scoffing. Now it is right and good sometimes to scoff, to react with a snort to something ridiculous or foolish. He that sitteth in the heavens will laugh, the Lord will have them in derision, Psalm 2.4. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about going out of our way to find reasons to scoff. Think of how easily we sometimes mock those of different theological persuasions. It's almost expected that we'll say something about dispensationalists if we say something about postmillennialism. I'm afraid that we might be starting to create a culture that defines itself by the errors of others. A culture that is tempted to glory in doctrine rather than glorying in Christ. I don't want us to, anytime we speak the glorious truths of the gospel, like the present reign of Jesus over all the nations, or of his putting his enemies beneath his feet, to have to cheapen that with a joke about how other brothers deny these things. Yes, doctrinal error is an affliction upon the church. And it has done much harm. But we ought not to speak evil against anyone, least of all against other brothers, and certainly not against shepherds of God's church. Now to speak no evil of them does not mean that we agree with their errors, or we approve of their sins, or we are silent when they lead their sheep astray, or we never speak out against their false doctrines, but it does mean that we stand ready to love them as Christ's own and to cover their infirmities, as the Westminster says. It means that we seek their honor and not their shame. It means that we treat them as more important than ourselves. It means that we don't let our frustration with them leak out in worthless words. Love vaunteth not itself. It is not puffed up. It doth not behave itself unseemly. It seeketh not its own. It is not provoked. It taketh not account of evil. It rejoiceth not in unrighteousness, but rejoiceth with the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, Endureth all things. Brothers and sisters, for the times that I have tolerated or encouraged even or participated in a culture of negativity towards other churches, I am sorry. It is my duty and it is Jared's duty to lead by example. We do not want to create a humorless culture, but we don't want to make a culture that makes light of the wrong things. We don't want to be clanging symbols, and we dare not be negative or mocking toward the rest of Christ's body. Let us rather keep about our own work, looking to our own sanctification and striving toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I know this is a lot to take in, a lot to process, especially if sphere sovereignty is unfamiliar territory. I don't imagine that I've answered every question that you have. In fact, I really hope I haven't. I don't imagine that I've put to rest every doubt that you might have. I hope that you would all feel free to ask Jared or me after the service about anything that you're not sure about or to push back on anything that does not seem right to you. Or I also hope you would feel free to just go off and think about it in order to come back when you feel like you can articulate yourself more clearly. Because these are difficult things to work through. We don't expect you to go from zero to a hundred in one or two sermons. It takes time to put the pieces together and we want to help you, not harry you. So I won't be preaching on Sphere Sovereignty again. I'm going to preach on worship next week. As a final word, let me also encourage the ladies. I know these are not naturally fascinating topics for women, okay? Um, And I know that they can also be intimidating to talk to men about, especially to talk to Jared or me, I'd like to encourage you to talk to your husbands about what you're thinking, what you're feeling. If you don't want to talk to us directly, that's okay. Um, I believe that that is why Paul gives this instruction to the Corinthians about wives asking their husbands at home. It's not so much a restriction as an accommodation to ensure marital harmony and to help husbands to shepherd their wives' hearts. All right, all of that said, let us pray. Father, we thank you for the rulership that you have instituted over the world and your wisdom in separating the powers of that rulership so that no fallen man, no fallen institution can ever have power over all things. We know that that would be a terrible thing and we've seen examples of how it works in history. We know that pagan cultures, the kings are also the priests and they have a totalizing influence and it tends to end very badly. We know that those cultures are not cultures we want to emulate. Please help us to understand your rulership better, to understand your wisdom better, to understand your word better, and to be able to preach it well, to teach it to our children and to our society. Give us opportunities to speak to our magistrates, to be able to speak to them of Christ's law and his displeasure with the things that they are currently doing, or his pleasure with the things that they are currently doing, that they would understand their role and their responsibility before him. We ask that you would uphold us in this. Through the name of Christ Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.